I don't know. Do we introduce guests? Or yeah. Do you want us to introduce you? <laughs> Go for it. Okay. I'll just say who it is. Uh, like when we had Josh Lefula. You said Josh Lefula. Let me introduce myself, Pukey. This is... This is Sadie. sister. <laughs> this is Beert. Big head. Named after Kurt Russell. I don't know. I'm going to have to edit this a lot. Hi there. This is Luke. On today's super spooky episode, we talk about exposition, controlling the audience, and balancing characters in horror with smile. Welcome to Notes from the Silver Screen. Why? Why did you go down in here? Someone else is down here. Someone bit me. I knew I was asleep in the dream, but I could feel that someone was awake in the house. This fellow was supposed to be bright. He sits there, and I get a lot of this. Look. <laughs> Look at the attitude. <laughs> Large as life. He sits there waiting to be tied up and gagged. <laughs> a big dog. Find you, dipshit. Get up. I can't, Billy. You cut me too deep. I think I'm dying here, man. She's dead. She is. These are the moments that make life worth living. My God, man. That was horrible. And I don't care. So it's been several months, I don't know, half a year. There's a, hopefully, listeners, you will have heard a very recent episode coming out this same month on, I believe, Cape Fear. Did we release the Cape Fear episode? I, I don't listen. <laughs> what I was know. the last episode we did? It might have been Cape Fear. I feel like I, I might have released it. seems like that. a long time ago. Yeah, I know. Anyways, I know there's an episode sitting on a hard drive somewhere that hasn't been edited. And well, we hopefully you'll get that out and then you'll have this... Halloween episode closer to the end of the month. Knowing me, you know, maybe you won't even, maybe you'll just get this one. <laughs> Last episode yeah, Cape was Cape Fear. Fear. It was June though. Still, I have no idea. We recorded one, I'm pretty sure, <laughs> after Cape Fear. What brings us together today with our special guest star is Spooktober, as some like to call it. <laughs> All Hallows' Eve. As others call it. They're not the same thing. Spooktober is the whole month. All Hallows Eve the, is like a day. The festivity. The okay. Halloween <laughs> festivities is what brings us together today. I think the last themed episode we did might have been last Halloween when we did... Uh, That's probably hereditary. I know we did that one for sure. Was that, was that the, our Halloween No, I think episode? the last one we did was uh, the Claymation guys. The Nightmare Before Christmas. Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. Oh, but maybe we did that at Christmas time. Nah, we'd have to do that Halloween. It's a Halloween film. Mm-hmm. Today we have Sadie on as our guest. <laughs> and, it's so um, awkward. She brings us not only her voice and contribution, but also today's feature film pick, which is probably the most recent film we've ever done, because normally we, we're going back, you know, decades or at least a couple of years. But we actually are covering a film that is currently in theaters. Oh, that is in theaters at the time of recording, but will probably not be by the time you listen to this. What do you mean? It's going to take you like a month to... I'm going to release it for Halloween. It's going to be a... How long are movies in the theater? Figure like a... Month like a, a discount theater. Yeah, that's... 
It's November. Yeah, when but it, I thought it came oh, out yeah, a while ago. It came out. You're asking the wrong person. So the film is Smile. A question I commonly ask Wally is, why did he pick the film? So, why did you pick Smile? Um, I mean, I was telling you, I didn't like it the first time I watched it. Watching it again, not that great of a movie. You liked it the first time? Yeah. But you mean you saw it twice then? Yeah, I saw it with my friends from work. Oh. That's, but, that's where this came about, because she called me up when she got out of it and was like, hey, this movie's really good, do you want to see it? And so, you know, we, but, we just got back from the theater to provide context for the listener. I was telling Lucas just a little bit ago, I think I liked it because I spoil stuff for myself. I don't like suspense. So actually watching something that like I hadn't, I didn't know anything about, I actually did enjoy it. But I'm an anxious person, so I don't like to be anxious watching stuff and not knowing what's going to happen. Why you watch horror film if you don't like suspense? <laughs> That's the foundation of the genre. Well, it's not my favorite genre. <laughs> I don't watch it a lot. You don't really like them either, though, to be fair. I like horror as a genre. It's kind of like a roulette, you know, spin, if you're going to, if it's going to be a good one. It's a really hard genre, I think, to make a it was successful movie. Like, this is actually scary. They can be like fun and like cult classic. Halloween, I bet Hall I haven't seen it, but I, I bet it's not scary, but like people like it. Halloween is hot garbage. <laughs> if uh, anybody cares to hear my take on Halloween and why it's a bad movie, you can go to <laughs> Friend of the Pod. What What was Sharon's podcast called? It's like about things or something. History of Knickknacks. Yeah. There was a Halloween <laughs> episode on History of Knickknacks about the history of the horror genre in film. And we talked about of many things, Halloween. So that's a good episode if you guys... That was like a remake, is that one good? With like an old Jamie Lee Curtis? Well, Halloween is a franchise, so there's probably been between like five and seven of them. Yeah. yeah. It's like Scream or the one with Leatherface, what's that called? About the Friday the 13th. Massacre, Friday, yeah. Those are the classic horror franchises. But we're not talking about any of those films today. We're talking about the first feature film of some director whose name I forgot. Smile, I'm not sold on Smile, but out of respect for the art form, I will tell you that Parker Finn wrote and directed Smile. I never heard No Ari Aster, I guess, for you know, first-time horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> Ari Aster is... Yeah, kind of bashing on it right out of the gate. Like, I, I thought the second half was pretty good. First half didn't have me. Didn't really coalesce for me. Second half, I was, I was along for the ride. I'll agree with that. I think it was a lot of it was the characters and the acting for me. And I remember, I remember sitting in the theater and thinking like, oh, they still got like a sword thumb to me, like the acting. I think it was the acting. I don't, it's hard to get a pulse on this thing. If it's the cast or the script or the actors themselves and the acting. I don't think it's necessarily wooden, but they just felt like they were acting and you couldn't get past that. You couldn't get, for me personally, you couldn't get to that, this, you know, suspension of disbelief that you needed to, or to really engage with the movie. And so I remember thinking, Ah, uh, if if they leaned a little more into this supernatural element of it, and kind of got away from these weird dialogue interactions that they're having with, between the characters, it would be a lot better. And you know, obviously, it ends. Spoiler. Do you guys do <laughs> spoiler the... alerts? No, we don't. That. Every movie we talk about, we spoil. So if you're listening yeah. to the podcast, you already know. I just know. figured since it's a recent like, movie. Latter half, she's like alone in the house, right? And so, and it really leaned into supernatural. So like on. I think there are, you know, other ways to get around it and make a better movie. If you weren't wooden in the first place. So I have a question. Is the reason you prefer the second half of the film because it 
largely leaves the interpersonal relationship dynamic of the story. I bet that's it. That's what I kind of wanted to address or bring up. I wonder, because if you look at horror as a genre, right? Like, I feel like a lot of movies, there's always, like, some kind of supernatural element, right? Like, that's the kind of the nature of the conflict, or maybe, like, a serial killer or something. And that's the focus of your movie. In a sense, like, the, the kind of the relationships or the personal dramas or the uh, character development is, is like, window dressing to, to a degree, right? Like, it's not something you can neglect or that isn't important. I wonder, I think there's like a difference in how much time you can dedicate to that versus another movie. Because I'm just thinking like the genres, a drama, right? Like that's all human interaction, right? That's all interaction between the characters or drama. In a sense, you, I feel you, know, you have like the whole movie to play with that. Whereas in a horror movie, you, you have to get to the, to the crux of like the resolving the supernatural horror or killing yeah. the super, someone dies, you know? And so you can't. It's the difficulty maybe of making a good horror movie is that you have you have a smaller time frame in order to develop the character and get people interested in caring about them and kind of setting the table in a sense. And I just think of Insidious, which is like a series that I really like. I felt like the first movie was really good in that respect because uh, you know it has all the horror elements into it, but you had the new family moving in, and they to me they were like believable characters, as, you know, kind of as in contrast to this one kind of really struck the balance there but what do you think about that as character development within a horror movie so i think it's an interesting concept i i don't have a great context for insidious i mean i'm, I'm sure i saw the first one when it came out i was thinking of i also recently saw barbarian which is something i was thinking about at the end of the film at the end of smile was i liked barbarian a lot better and i felt like it was more interesting from a filmmaking standpoint and honestly more competently made but we'll get in maybe to more of my issues from the filmmaking of Smile here in a bit. What's interesting to me is that I found Barbarian very compelling and I don't feel like it spent much time developing the characters and not not in a bad way I mean that as a strength or I guess perhaps the character development felt more organic I felt like there were so many scenes where we have our protagonist and she's in conflict or interacting with these different people in her life, whether that's her boss or her sister or her fiance or her ex. And the focus of the whole scene is on the relationship and it isn't contextualized into the larger drama of the, of the film, which is the horror. Whereas with Barbarian and I won't get into spoilers on that film. You're, it's developing a relationship between the two main characters, but it's playing into the genre of suspense because we don't really have... Like, we opened on... In Barbarian, it opens on the the woman who's the, the main protagonist of the film, but we don't know really anything about her. And then the, the male character is introduced and as it builds out who these characters are in relation to each other and it sets up the foundation for the relationship that is fundamental to the rest of the, the arc of the story, it's playing on suspense and on the distrust of the characters and it feeds right into the genre itself because you're trying to figure out, can we trust this guy? Or is this going to be like a ghost story? Or is it going to be a slasher? Is she being put in danger right now? 
And so that's the undercurrent of those conversations. Whereas I think my biggest issue with Smile is everything feels very one-dimensional to me. There's a hyper-focus mm -hmm. yeah. on everything from cinematography to character to even the story that I feel kind of flattens everything down. And it makes it, probably it plays into not being believable because it's not three-dimensional. There's a lack of depth there. And I feel like that makes it harder where, oh, we have these two characters and they're standing in this really shallow depth of focus mm -hmm. and they're talking really pointedly about their relationship. But textually, the film isn't tying it into anything larger. Yeah. It isn't feeding into the, the overall story as much as it should be. Obviously, with film, it's a temporal experience. And as people experiencing film, we're going to carry across semantic meaning from frame to frame um, just by the nature of how we experience moving images. But I feel like textually, the film isn't doing the work it needs to to link in this scene about her fighting with her boyfriend to what it means for the character in a horror context. Like why, what impact is this going to have on, you know, our monster hunt or anything like that? Do you have a comment on that? If not, I have a question for you. I mean, I don't know, a lot of what you guys say kind of goes over my head, but I was thinking, what's the purpose of the different genres? Logie Bear mentioned drama and how that focuses on relationships. If you're watching a drama movie, you're there for like the relationship, how people develop and stuff. But if you're watching a horror movie, you're not really there for the person. You're kind of just there, I don't know, for like the horror of it, to like get spooked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in that context, if you're there for a horror movie, yeah, you don't really want like to see them talking about their lives and relationships and stuff. You just, you want to see something scary. So. I don't feel like it's like a dispensable part necessarily. It kind of depends on what tonally you're going for it though, in my mind too, right? Like if it's something that's really stylized and like, how wacky out there, supernatural. I don't know, we saw, um, what was that movie? With the caveat? It's like that little indie film, right? There's not a lot, a really small cast, but I do think that one's like more of like a psychological kind of, kind of stylized in a sense, right? So, I mean, there's obviously still character interaction, but not really like a ton of depth there. You know, it's like very different, whereas this one's more grounded in reality and it's got people in it, so. I, I think I more side with Logan on the, the character isn't something you can do away with, but I don't feel like it's effectively used in this film because the character is supposed to feed into the promise of the film, right? And with horror, the promise is suspense and terror, and it's all about eliciting that emotion from the audience. And predominantly what we have in the genre is, you know, these supernatural beings and like something that we can't really understand or, or something that you can't avoid. Obviously, you know, you have the subgenre of slasher or you have, you know, body horror, or torture mm. porn. <laughs> There's subgenres, but all of it is about eliciting that, that response. And I feel like in many ways, Smile is kind of counterproductive in that way. Just again, talking about how her dynamic with her boyfriend doesn't really have any impact on the story whatsoever. Like, I guess you could say it motivates her to go to her ex, the cop, and kind of restore that relationship with him and recruiting aid for her current issue. That would stand alone without that, right? Yeah, like, she doesn't, I need help. She doesn't need the fiance. Is. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the, the bigger issue for me is that on paper, the, the concept, having the character's central need 
tied into the trauma of the story um, is really important. It's how you should go about writing screenplays, right? Our character has this trauma from her childhood. And honestly, like, I, I don't even know if she should be practicing therapy because she's well, like, still having a uh, psychiatry. But Thank I want to talk expert. about that later. Because um, she's super messed up. But on paper, her having this trauma and then having to overcome it in the battle for against this supernatural being, that sounds like a great core concept for a story. If you were to give me an elevator pitch for a horror film, I would be like, that sounds great. Give me the script, right? If I was a producer. But I don't... So I, I kind of want to, if you guys are down, try to figure out why it doesn't work. Because in theory, that should be a better horror film if you're tying it into character and the storytelling and building an arc as we we move through you know the tropes or the the expectations of the genre using genre as a way to examine character and to reveal or or actualize the character growth that we expect from storytelling but it falls flat and i'm not really sure why i think it is important not saying in a horror movie no character there because of course you have to relate to the character in order to like really make it believable. Her trauma and her past, like watching her mom overdose, is like important to the story because that's all about whoever entity it is chooses victims. <laughs> chooses like victims based on like past trauma, right? So that's important to her character. But I do think there is, Logan was saying he likes the second half better because I think it is kind of split into halves. Like the first half's the people and their relationships and the second half is just kind of like the horror straight up. I don't think it does a really good job of blending that and it does lean really heavily on like relationships and the people. I don't know, it just like really goes into their relationships. It's like we don't really need to know this much about these people. Yeah, it's important to like make your characters believable and have them have relationships, but I think they were just like really focusing on that and then they kind of switched. I, I, I think I agree with that. I think the film would be stronger, especially in the first half, if you, you were getting both. Because the first half, there's not really any suspense. I, I didn't feel in a state of suspense, really, at all. It's, it's about... Yeah, a couple of jump scares pump up, or... Yeah, but, and... So, like, if you'll remember, there's that scene, I think, with the guy smiling at her, you know, she walks by, and then he's like, you're gonna die, you're gonna die. We're, there are people laughing, I think, laughing in the theater at that point. <laughs> so, I don't think that, like, achieved what they were hoping for when they were making the movie. That there were a couple of points. Uh, I remember maybe two or three in the, the first half of the film where people laughed at moments. <laughs> the title and, card. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's not supposed to be. like it, They're going for like something that's scary there, you know what I mean? Like, it's not, yeah. Sometimes there's something in there like, but, that's supposed to be kind of funny. But. Yeah, that speaks to the, the inexperience of, of the director. I think it's, like you said, horror is hard, and... The conversation I was having about Barbarian coming out of that is that tie between comedy and horror, where both of them, more so than other genres in my opinion, have to have the pulse of the audience. Because you have the the setup and the punchline, but you gotta know when to when to go for the laugh in a comedy. You can't you have to have that variability of highs and lows and the same way with horror is you have to build the suspense and then you have to release it. And I think that's probably a big reason why the first half falls flat because 
you have a pretty straight and honestly, in my opinion, dry and flat character building going on. And then it's more or less randomly interspersed with jump scares. But the jump scare is supposed to be the climax of a building of suspense. And I think in, in good horror, that, that's kind of the expectation of the audience. And then that opens the door for more playing with the form where you can build up the suspense so the audience expects a jump scare. And if you subvert their expectations by not giving it to them, like that's an interesting dynamic you can play with with an audience. But kind of having this moment where, you know, they're just talking and then she starts stabbing somebody or whatever it is, you know, it, it doesn't follow that emotional um, momentum of the story. It feels kind of dis disconjointed, mm -hmm. if that's a word. Disjointed, right? Disjointed. disconjointed. Yeah, <laughs> I did say disconjointed. It feels disjointed, though. You got, like, I think jump scares are really a really interesting uh, tool in horror, aren't they? Probably more of an art than a science. There's just been that idea I've heard of using... Oh, I can't remember. I think it was like a video essay, right? About jump scares where you build up to like a jump scare, but you don't show something and there's a calculus to it. Go ahead. Yeah, talking about jump scares, because I felt like there were some cool ones in there. You can kind of get some innovation, especially in a horror movie. Some Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but if, if it does really work, then that really adds a lot to it. Uh, remember the head falling down on the rotating? I mean, that was in the trailer, so like going into the movie, if you've seen that, you kind of are expecting that one. Gosh, where's the other ones? Because I feel like there were a couple that were like really stood out. When to she's me. listening to the audio recording and trying to hear a sound. Yeah, I guess that was okay. I didn't like the audio bit. That seemed kind of. A lot of the movie felt trite to me. Just any other horror film. I've seen that a million times. It, it's I don't want to see it again. Paint by numbers, <laughs> yeah. in my opinion. I did like the one jump scare where the alarm goes off, right? And she's on the phone. And it's like, are you sure? Look behind you. And you're like kind of expecting a jump scare when she turns around. But then it's like, oh, the phone rings. It's yeah, kind of like see? a fake out. That's a cool idea. I That's like, like, that like that about one. the jump scares as like a, yeah. as an artistic tool and how to use it. How to use it, you know? Like when, Yeah, that's when probably a good one of that idea of, of building the tension. And then it releases, but in in subverting your expectation as an audience member. I guess this is a minor point, but with respect to the moment of listening to the audio recording and that jump scare, I just, it feels amateurish, and that scene in particular is kind of a misunderstanding of, I guess, cinematic language, is that's a moment to me that Red is funny, because she's playing this recording again and again, that is a moment where our audience members laughed because it plays the audio and you hear like some static at the yeah. end of the track. Why is she playing and that? And so she plays it in reverse and you hear her saying, I don't know, she says some word. She says a single word. Oh, I think it says, really? I think she the says the name, yeah, right? Yeah, like Laura or yeah. That did not, Laura or I did not catch that And she all. says, I'm like, why does she keep going back? So she just, says, she's saying something and then she static. She says Chloe and then there's static and she's trying to figure out what the static is. But it for some, static. But for some reason, every time she rewinds it somehow by playing the audio in reverse, past her saying the name in reverse, and then plays it forward so she says the name again and then the static. So you get reverse static, reverse name, name, static. She does it probably four or five times in the film. <laughs> and she's that got the audience laughing. And then what I laughed at 
is she leans in and like squints at the waveform. <laughs> and I started to chuckle at that part. And that's right before the jump scare. And so that's what I'm talking about of, I feel like he doesn't have a pulse on how the audience is reacting, right? Because if they're laughing, <clears throat> that is not the time for a jump scare. <laughs> and you kind of lose them. They're not in the emotional state that you want them to be in before the jump scare. And so mm -hmm. building that moment, redoing it first, if you're having somebody listen hard, don't have them squint that like, well, I guess squinting is okay. Like some kind of an emotional that's acting, right? How do you mm -hmm. act that you're listening hard? I don't know. I tell, you know, <laughs> that's not my job to tell the actor how to do it. If I was the director, it would be, but. It's a thing, she like leans into the screen and we punch in with the camera closer to the waveform. Like cinematically, it's telling us look harder. But that's what tripped me up is we're looking harder at sound. It doesn't make sense. And I think the rest of the, our audience, it was just funny that you have so, so much repetition of audio and then you play out loud the reverse of the audio five times and it becomes comedic even if it was just repeating the audio forward again and again that's already a huge win because i think part of the humor came from we never well, why would you play the audio in reverse it sounds <laughs> funny but you can get away with that one or two times you know was she even, was she's using a computer program are they usually like that because that's like analog right yeah like, <laughs> like we've we've seen in videos you know and even serious videos like noir or detective films like seven or something where you'd have a tape quarter and you would rewind it and you have like the feedback of it rewinding but doing it so many times it makes the moment feel absurd and now your audience is laughing at the film and you can't scare somebody who isn't taking you seriously yeah. i guess is the point I can kind of see what he was trying to do there, like kind of get like, oh, we're really focusing on this audio, and then all of a sudden jump scare. But yeah, it doesn't it doesn't come across well. I don't know. Like, I felt like I was super critical on the first part too because I think they're trying to set the table right and kind of build the characters and the exposition. Like that's probably what that scene was in a sense, right? It was exposition. Well, maybe not that scene in particular. You know, so like I said, I was kind of hypercritical in, in the first bit because I don't feel like there was much to give on to. Kind of a feedback cycle, maybe, but. Why is she listening to that horrible audio in the first place? And what, I can see maybe why it exists, but like... Or like notes. I don't know how typical that is. I feel like a lot of people... So this, this is a big thing. I want to actually dive into the, the idea of being hypercritical. I think there's an interesting philosophical conversation we could have about how we interact with film as a medium. But first I wanted to touch on her listening to the recording which for me, a lot of the film feels like that, is we're told something's happening and it doesn't necessarily make sense, right? It doesn't make sense either for the character. I guess it could, like, if it was presented in a better way, you could make sense of she's trying to understand what happened. She's trying to move through this traumatizing experience. I don't think it makes sense for anybody to listen to the trauma again and again, hoping to understand it better. But if they couched it better, I think it could work. The problem is we're just continually dropped in different scenes throughout the film. We do hard mm -hmm. cuts. We're That's somewhere kind of like else before, with someone else. Like with the, with like the different interactions. Yeah, being very discreet. Disjointed. 
but also the recording doesn't do anything. We get one jump scare out of it, it never comes back. It has no meaning, it has no import. There it's was no sound on it. the tape. Yeah. There, there's no clue we gather that gets us closer to discovering the monster. It's not properly grounded in character, even though it has the room to be. The scene isn't contextualized in the overall flow of the film, and it doesn't carry any weight to the narrative. If Honestly, if you fixed any one of those problems, I think it would read a lot better to the audience. They might not laugh at it. Yeah, <laughs> but it doesn't do any of them, and so missteps in film compound greatly, and that kind of is a nice segue to this idea of why I also felt the same way of I was being super hypercritical of the film, right, pretty much right from the get-go. But I'm sitting there and I'm like, no, I want to enjoy movies. And, you know, my sister invited me to this. <laughs> she enjoyed it. Can I just sit here and enjoy this film? And I'm trying, but I don't like the feeling of trying to enjoy a movie. Mm -hmm. I honestly think if a movie's good, it forces you to enjoy it. And I even have the issue of sometimes being hyper, I guess, hyper-focused on film in general, where when I watch a movie, sometimes I'll start thinking about camera moves, I'll start thinking <laughs> about editing and sound design. I also think the sound design is garbage in this movie. Garbage is a strong... We're, okay, this is, this is a raw, this is fresh out of the theater version of NFTSS, so maybe we'll be a little harsh, but bear with us. Yeah, well, I mean... I guess it's kind of the idea of you, you focus on what's bad, you know what I mean? But I think there was like a lot that was redemptive about it. And you know, I understand the difficulty in making a movie, like any, you know, any movie uh, goes into it. So I don't want to interrupt the flow, but like the CGI at the end, that monster was super good with like the close. And I think that was kind of like a stylistic thing that, I, you know, I was on board with like the close, close up tight on the face back and forth. It's kind of like a motif. I think that kind of emerged in it. And I thought, you know, it's a nice little style point to them. You're talking about hypercriticalities. Yeah. <laughs> so here's something that I think is interesting, and it's something I've thought about a lot in the past, is this idea of the, the relationship between audience and film, or filmmaker and audience, in that in order to enjoy a film, you have to feel like you're in good hands. Right? Especially because of the beginning of any narrative, maybe especially in film, just because of how much we're exposed to it, is you're, you're laying the groundwork for a larger story. Right? We, we, we're dropped into your film, we're dropped into your narrative, we have no idea what's going on, and so you have to find a way to exposit the basic foundation of your story without boring your audience and without having them tune out. When that happens, like any act of watching a film is, okay, I'm gonna get a little fruity, but it's like an act of faith, right? You're putting your faith into the filmmaker that these images and these characters and these story beats are going to have importance. They're going to, to play into the larger structure of the, of the film, of the art, of the narrative we're consuming. And so when you have missteps, especially early on in the film, I think just as audience members, especially, you know, in our modern digital world where we're so immersed in consumption from TikToks to 
you know, social media to YouTube to endless TV and movies on streaming services, we're so good at consuming that we have a very elevated sense of what's good. And so when you have missteps where like the characters don't feel real, it feels acted, turning back to that idea that everything feels very isolated and it doesn't play into the larger structure. Um, you have these little character moments of her different relationships and we're dropped into various different locations with her, but they're not contextualized very well in my opinion, is kind of reflected in the visual style. I think the film's kind of ugly and I, I don't know why I dislike it so much, but a lot of it is very head-on, relatively close framing of faces with a super, super blurry background. Like to the point, it kind of looks like portrait mode on a smartphone to me, a lot of the <laughs> shots. I know it isn't, but that visual language that I've learned through social media largely is it makes it hard for me to like stay grounded with these characters when we cut from this like head on like the frames to me look like a, a portrait for a social media account like a, a profile picture it's square they're looking right into the camera it the frame is centered yeah, around their head it's not like and a social media picture like on like puts up on their photo like this <laughs> <laughs> okay but like the blurry background and everything. Like, I don't know, a professional headshot on LinkedIn. That would be a thing. You'd They're way the tighter camera. than that would even be though. Okay, yeah, probably tighter, but just, I think the visual Although language. I, I don't know what you're talking about exactly. Beyond, I, well, I, I mean, just in that, I can't remember like the instances maybe you're referring to Beyond. Cause I mean like, so at the very beginning she was interviewing, what, what's her name, Laura, do you say? Yeah. I think she made that name up, but the girl. <laughs> okay, right. Because I remember, I remember that was like real tight. Yeah. Back and forth was was that like the idea you're talking about, or was it? Yeah, that and moment? also just the fact that everything is thrown out of focus, but the one character we're looking at, mm -hmm. and I feel like that was something I noticed is visually and in the storytelling and in the filmmaking in general. There's this hyper focus on one thing. And I think that lends into the one dimensionality of the reading of the film, at least for me personally. We have this one scene, but the previous scene doesn't lead us into it and it doesn't lead us anywhere. And so it feels like the director is taking this one moment and handing it to you and saying, here, this is a moment. And it's not in a chain of moments that form a film. Everything is so hyper-focused that you have this relationship between her and her fiance, and you have, oh, here he's he's a very loving fiance. They, they have a good relationship, even though she's shook. You know, this is, this is a good moment. And then, you know, we'll come back later and, oh, this is a bad moment. They're not vibing, but they're so isolated and visually, you know, with this, with this weird camera and just, Stylistically, in general, I really hated even the opening set with the the little psychiatry room. Just, I don't know what it is. The set design, the colors, it A felt empty like, room. to me, one of those museums or places they have where people go to take Instagram photos mm -hmm. and they have, like, colorful sets that people take Instagram photos in. That's what the opening of the film felt like to me. And there's a ton of 
unmotivated camera moves. I, a lot of the film, like, I don't want to hate on this director as much as I am, but... <laughs> but I'm going to anyway. <laughs> a lot of the film, well, it reminds me of, you know, what I would do. I've made a couple of really bad shorts, and I think part of what's bad about them is as people who are haven't yet developed a strong sense of cinematic language, is you're very on the nose with how you convey information. And so opening with a weird sideways tilt to the camera on the dead mother and then doing a pan across what's in the room to show, oh, she's a mother with a family. They're happy. There's two little girls. It, it just kind of is annoying to me. It's like, I, I guess... Well, there's no subtlety for you? Yeah. No it's, it's not subtle. Touch. <laughs> and just a lot of that, like, I thought of it in the moment where there, there's a scene where the camera's inside of a fridge and she opens the fridge and she gets like a wine bottle out and then she closes the fridge and opens a cupboard. And like, I did something I exactly the same in a short I did I was with like the camera inside of, you know, a cupboard and a fridge as you open it. And you're like, oh, this is such an interesting shot. This is going to look so cool. And I felt like that's what they kept doing. Oh, well, so like, I'm trying to understand the nature of your objection, right? Because I mean, like... When you get down to it, there's like a finite pl number of places where you can put a camera, right? So, is it necessary like the position, or or is it just like trying to seek some kind of trendy novelty that people do, right? To, to me, it so came across sense. as trying to be cool. The film is trying to say, "Look at this sick shot we got," and there's there's the one there's so like it, so it's more like the intention behind it rather than yeah. the execution? Yeah, so yeah, I think the execution is actually pretty good for the most part. There's some really smooth dollies. There's some... like so it's like if it was like in another movie in a different context, it wouldn't wrinkle you. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's why, why is this camera move necessary? Why is it framed this way? Because half of the film we're watching is visual. And I guess harping back on that same point of one dimensionality, I don't like the sound mix. It feels very sparse. And I don't know if it was just the theater where you were at, but the dialogue felt way too loud. It's when somebody's talking, the only thing you hear is their voice. Mm -hmm. And it weirded me quiet. out. And there's a couple of moments, like one where I guess it's trying to convey she's going crazy, but when they're singing happy birthday, Oh, and yeah. happy birthday drops out and you have this really, really like kind of not one tone in the musical sense but one tone is in there's it's not dynamic i thought it was this, just muted this like audio shock shocked or something well it's it's a it's a little musical riff oh, but right. it doesn't really go anywhere it's just kind of repetitive and it's this mm -hmm. drone and it probably lasts for 30 seconds where we're just like a camera slowly moving in on her and this audio just kind of floods the the soundscape and it's that idea, like, I feel like there's a lot of really good intentions behind, oh, the opening camera move is showing, not telling, right? And this, the audio of, of the song dropping out and this track coming in is showing us her disassociating from the party and, like, going into her own mind. But it doesn't feel cohesive like I don't want to as an audience member to feel like oh the director wants me to know that she's going into her own mind right I want to be taken on the adventure with the characters 
And I think probably a lot of my reading is unfair just because right from the get-go, I was kind of put back onto my hills. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, well, this is, I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like that. And so it kind of makes it harder for me to get into the story. But as I was saying earlier, I think a great film, even if I'm being overly analytical, will kind of force me to, to get into the car and go on the adventure with the characters. Well, my question, you, you kind of answered it, was just about like, why did you like the second half better than the first? I had that big scary monster. That was, and it was crawling <laughs> inside her mouth. That was a cool shot there. I think the VFX team did a good job. I do like that because it's like, it's possessing her, right? Because then she's not there, it's the monster that like, is pouring the gasoline on her, right? Yeah. Because like she was, once she was talking to the ex-boyfriend in the car, she's like, she wasn't there anymore. It was like, the person I was talking to was gone. So I did like that. It's kind of like, oh, it's like going in her and then like basically she's gone, so. Oh yeah, I guess I, would, I said before, like it should be puppeting her in some way just for like a cut, like uh -huh. a little, a couple frames or something. But I guess I want to make sense if it's inside her somehow. I mean, it's a very mystical thing, but I think that was like an Insidious too, though, wasn't it? Where, yeah, the demon was uh, puppeting the little boy or something. So here's, here's one thing that I actually did like about the film. I'm going to kind of couch it in a negative. Um, oh. <laughs> in that, what a surprise. So as we come to the end of the film, we have the, the moment where she, she vanquishes the monster. Well, you can't escape my mind either. And she overpowers it. The, the negative is that to me that doesn't fit in the story and it's jarring. I don't feel like that flows with like everything we've been told up to this mm -hmm. point, which like, I think I'm really glad that he has the reversal where he says, oh no, that wasn't real. The, the monster is still here. She's still in the house. She's still going to die. Yeah, I was hoping they would do that. But I feel like for that yeah, reversal to that. work, I, th I think that's a really great move having that reversal, but I didn't buy the initial story. And this is actually something I wanted to ask. I mean, I bought it, but I just thought, like, if this is how it really ends, it's going to be super lame. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I guess that's the same thing. Like, I, I thought, oh, well, that kind of sucks. That isn't the story you've been telling us for the past hour and a half. But my question for you is, how important is truth in what the camera tells us? Because this film plays so loosely with it. All the time throughout the film, we're shown something that is not real in any way, shape, or form. And I feel like it could work in this film in particular because our, our point of view into the film, our lead character, is kind of going insane, but is she really, right? That's, that's kind of the question at the heart of the film is, is her trauma, has it made her crazy or is this real and she's actually sane? I feel like showing the audience something and playing it straight as if it's really happening and then saying, oh no, that didn't happen, I feel like that's just so tough to pull off. In either this film or other films where you're shown something and then it's later revealed to not be true, how do you feel about that? Well, wouldn't that kind of be like going along the journey with the character like you were saying in the happy birthday scene? You're kind of experiencing what the character could experience and then later you realize like oh they weren't experiencing reality probably more nuanced idea maybe right is what's a uh, shutter island in that showing you stuff that isn't real just by the nature yeah. of the film <laughs> yeah 
That that's a probably a good example. I guess my my negative point is so there there's a I don't know if it's a trope, but there's this idea of a well-documented cheap out. Is that a word? Is that a phrase? In like sitcoms where you have something happen and at the end of the episode, your character wakes up and, oh, it was all a dream. None of that happened. And it just cuts the knees out from under your audience, cuts the knees out from your story. And it's just, oh, so you just wasted 40 minutes of my life. You know, you <laughs> finished the episode and you're like, so that has, I've been watching this show. I come in here to get more of the story and you tell me something that's completely made up in the context of the story. And I feel like, at least for me, that's very frustrating. And so in a, in a film, I think my question is, does that same thing happen? I don't know. So like in, in House MD, when uh, there's a season series, I think it's over a couple episodes where he's like, well, he thinks he's like detoxing right from his from his medication and that Cuddy, like the hospital administrator, is helping him through that. And then there's the reveal that like that was all kind of imagined, hallucinated. Um, I don't know, like that's that's like what the story is, right? I mean, it's rooted in human drama and it's showing the, the ultimate exclamation point, like the reason, like the reveal emphasizes that like he's in a really bad place and that the, the drug effects are really bad. So, I mean, I don't really have like a period for that thought, but I, I guess there's like intent behind it and it does serve something. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I wish I could come up with, those are both really great examples, both, I haven't seen the house, but from the sound of it, that, that's exactly what I'm talking about, and Shutter Island as well. But I know there have been other films where I thought it's worked relatively effectively, and films where it really grates me like in Smile, and I'm not exactly sure what the difference is, why it works sometimes and not others. I, I think in films where you have an unreliable narrator and that's established, I think it's probably more likely to work. Um, but, you know, Shutter Island doesn't have that and it couldn't because the, the big, you know, twist of the film is that everything we've been told is his misrepresentation of reality because he refuses to accept what real life is. But I think that kind of ties into the grander thematic message of the film where I think my issue is once again coming back to it just being a little too one-dimensional and yeah that's a tough problem because then you know everything else follows yeah it, it creates it has this scene where she imagines killing this guy to escape the curse only to tell us that I was okay with that though because it was well executed like from a, like a artistic point of view for me like the stabbing was like kind of surreal where she just like stabs him and like nobody interjects and the guy's just kind of standing there and she like pulls it out kind of slowly and, yeah, and then the face pull, at guy her. pulls off his face at the end. So like, yeah, so I don't, I don't know. I didn't really think about it in the terms that you're speaking of. I don't really know where I land on that, but I, I was really, if, if I do have a problem with that, I think it's forgiven by me because of that. You know, the execution. Oh, well, you don't think it's cool when he pulls off his face? Well, yeah, I think that was cool because I remember the first time watching that and I was like, wait, is it, she like really doing this? And then you're like, oh no, it's just another like hallucination. But she gotta be working 80 hour weeks for like, uh, forget that. Like, I, I would never work 80 hours. That's why she's asleep at her desk. <laughs> and, it's like those Japanese that just sleep at their desk. Is. 
And it's like a sign that they're like really dedicated because they're falling asleep at their desk. IRL psychiatrists I work with, they work one week on, one week off. So Oh, it's oh, a sweet depends. gig. I mean, realistically, like, it depends because every job's different for like psychiatrists. Like, there's psychiatrists who like work from home and they do like telehealth. Why is the the opening room with the crazies, why is it so bad? Because it's not a psych safe room. Is like, it because it has a vase, vase that you, <laughs> you can slit your neck with? Oh yeah, that too. And then like, she picked up that chair and moved it next to the homeboy talking to himself really easily. Mm. IRL at my work, the chairs are really heavy so that patients can't pick them up and throw them. <laughs> and like, the potted plants, like what's that about? That could be used. Um, the clock on the wall, the patient shouldn't have access to that. And I was thinking, like, because when the cops are interviewing her, she's like, I work in emergency psych or something like that, right? Yeah. And I'm like, you're going to Normal doesn't play into it. Yeah, I'm like, um, you're going to get real crazy if you're working emergency psych. I work, like, on a... I'm a behavioral health technician for your listeners. <laughs> but, like, their process. Like, they go to the ER and then we're like, okay, will we accept them? Well, they're not appropriate, so they can't come to our unit. So, like, even then you get kind of crazy people. Sorry, that's not very trauma-informed care, but you get wackos. <laughs> but in like an ER, like somewhere where it's like emergency, you're gonna have like violent people. You're gonna have real, just crazy cases. Like so, that room is just not realistic. And also, I think when you first see Laura, she's like freaking out on a stretcher, right? I find it hard to believe she's just chilling in a room by herself. I think she would still be restrained or like. She She's free on a stretcher? You know when it like shows the shot from above the ambulance and they like will her out and she's like ah, and the restraints. No, I don't remember that. Realistically... It was before she met the doc? Yeah. Yeah, when she... Well, I guess it had to be. Because the, the cops bring her in, right? Because the ex is apologizing the very first scene? I'm talking about the girl who kills herself in the beginning of the movie. Yeah, because the, the cop was... Like, she was on campus and she started freaking out. Yeah, and then the cops sent her there. Oh, anyways, but like, uh, anyways, the, the, ex, the ex apologizes. Would, He's like, oh, I didn't know you were on call or whatever. Otherwise, I would have sent them someplace else, which doesn't really make sense. But, you know, that's trying to have a character moment with them, I guess. But yeah, anyways, just like realistically from a psych point, like I get they're in a movie industry. They're not in a psych industry. <laughs> they're not going to get it. But still, I was like, as somebody who works in psych, I don't believe this. Well, I think it, it probably just for me personally, it goes back to that idea of from the get-go becoming super hypercritical of the film. I don't really know anything about behavioral health either, but there were moments with that setting and I think even with the police, just stuff didn't feel believable or yeah. real. And I'm like, well, they wouldn't do that or this wouldn't happen that way. And I think just being put into that mindset of oh, well, I'm going to find everything wrong with the film. <laughs> yeah. it, it's a really bad mindset. Like, I yeah. I don't agree with the whole notion behind, like, cinema sins or that whole movement of being hyper-negative, even though I am being super negative. It, it's constructive. Maybe next time they'll make a better movie. <laughs> I do think, like, the whole concept's really interesting, and yeah. I like things I do. I just feel like it could definitely be done better. And I don't I don't believe, like, Rose's <laughs> character too well, especially, like, in I like the beginning. the actress, probably. I mean, she does a really good job of being like that really nervous, like, you know? I feel like she was like that from the very beginning. I feel like you need to kind of build that up as she's experiencing mm -hmm. these hallucinations. And she kind of gets more and more crazy. 
Yeah. Does that make sense? That that's another thing, just kind of with with the way the story is portrayed. I just feel like it's kind of the same beat. It's a little repetitive. It's a little one note. Whereas she she's frantically rubbing her face and biting her fingers, and you do these really close shots of her biting her fingers and. I don't know, it just feels like we kind of hit that beat already and visually it isn't interesting and also kind of that idea of even the framing and the storytelling from a visual standpoint kind of feels flat. Not that like you couldn't have a moment like that, it's just that without having other scenes with greater depth of a field or greater, I don't know, more interesting visual storytelling kind of becomes monotonous and so those scenes have less impact. Do people really have birthday parties like that for their seven-year-old where they got like all these adult people there and maybe they're there for their kids but I would just drop my kid off. I'm gonna go <laughs> for a birthday party for... Well they have alcohol obviously you're gonna go and party with the parents. Well I guess. they're all annoying wasps. It's like so a billion people there. Like... I don't even know that many people. You're gonna invite that many people <laughs> to your house? I don't know if you guys noticed but I noticed that the sister wears pink and she wears blue, and I thought that was kind of interesting that, like, they tried to make, like, a visual difference between the two. But then, she like, Rose's... personality, then she? She almost messed up. Yeah, and then <laughs> you kind of see, like, I don't know if it's, like, but, you know, Rose was kind of wearing blue, and then she kind of went to, like, gray and stuff. So she killed her mom when she was a kid. <laughs> she just didn't save her. Is yeah, like, like Batman. Didn't save Raz al Ghul. <laughs> a little sprinkle in here about exposition in horror movies. Seems like, especially like nowadays, and it makes sense, right? Like everybody, oh my gosh, I need to research this. Let's Google it and look up stuff on the web. And I guess it works okay, like for exposition. Like what else are you going to do? But that's my question. What else can you do like to show exposition and like researching the horror there? That would be novel because that's what I want to see in a horror movie. Maybe go to a library even. I, mean, I feel like they kind of do that, but... That's where I went with Supernatural. You see them go to libraries and, you know, read old lore. I would. That's more interesting. You visit, like... Even, than, even if it's, like, not original or... You visit, like, a, like that. a witch doctor or some just crazy Google old stuff person. Nowadays and, all right, let's show them typing something in the computer. Looking this stuff up. I guess they interview people, too. That's some old mystic guy, though. <laughs> I don't know. It's an exercise. Oh, brainstorming for, our, for Jory when she listens to this. And well, I can. Our, our one. Uh, I can add questions on uh, yeah, Spotify. There you, go. you want me to add a question <laughs> yeah, to the audience? Yeah, a question. A little. How can little, you exposit uh, research in a horror, in a horror film? That would be kind of new. That would be interesting. I didn't think it was kind of nice that like it wasn't like oh she did all this research and she found out it was like this specific demon or something. It was just kind of like. She just started trying to figure out how she mm. went, and she kind of like maybe like the pattern of the suicides. Yeah, psychic in there that sees it with her third eye. <laughs> I bet I'm sure that's been done before, but you don't see it a ton. Like uh, that's what they do in Insidious, right? The bringing in the psychic, and doesn't she? Like, oh yeah, see, so there you go. It's a good movie. <laughs> that's probably another reason why. <laughs> with the the idea of research, that was I guess another moment talking about I guess maybe the psychology or some of the police aspects that fill faults is when they go into the jail. Well, first, like... Yeah, how's that guy looking stuff up? That's completely unethical. Yeah. Well, but he's a cop. Is that, and then, like, yeah, he, he can't says, remember, right? <laughs> he, <laughs> he, 
he even says that he's locked up upstate, and so presumably it's out of his precinct, out of his like. Yeah, district. but you know, cops are all chumming with each other. Lucas. But he just rolls up, and somehow he's best buds with the guard. He's like, "Don't worry, homie. I got ten minutes with this guy just for you." But then, okay. But my big issue is this random accountant who had four days of being chased by a demon somehow was able to find a chain of random suicides in Brazil a couple decades ago. How does, what? How did he do that? Oh yeah. He just I Googled mean, suicide after somebody witnessed suicide and he finds an article in Brazil. Play it off, though. Like, yeah, you're under like a, an incredible amount of mental stress if you're being haunted by that ghost. Like he could just go crazy and kill someone and then there you go. I mean, like a, it, it didn't have to be like a reason thing. But no, he he says like yeah, I know, I know it wasn't yeah. a movie. I'm saying okay. like that's another reason. Okay, it could yeah. have. But <laughs> like I guess that's that's feeding into my my issue with nothing goes anywhere. You spend you have this big moment of building up her listening to audio. The audio doesn't do anything. She never follows up with Brazil. You create this moment just for the moment itself and it doesn't tie into anything. Why did we listen to the audio so we could give a jump scare? Why did we visit the guy in prison and he tell us about Brazil? I guess so that she could imagine killing her patient, but the Brazil doesn't tie into it. I just think it's kind of interesting, sorry, bit of a topic junk, that like you kind of see different ways she maybe could have gotten out of it. Like, obviously, they kind of just hand you the kill somebody with a witness. Mm -hmm. But also, when she's, like, headed to the cabin, I mean, not the cabin, like, her... Yeah, isolating. That's house. really smart. Yeah. That's a good move. But she I didn't go remote enough. That's what you gotta do. But yeah, I was thinking, like, you can either just go and, like, I don't know, like, isolate yourself so you don't have the chance to kill yourself in front of someone, and then, like, try to work through your trauma since that, like, is what the entity works off of. Because that's, like, mm -hmm. kind of what I feel like she did. But I was thinking, like... I would just take myself somewhere where no one saw me and killed myself. And yeah. then, like, doesn't that break That's the... That's what I thought, too. Mm -hmm. That's what you got to do anyways. Yeah. And also, I thought she was, like, thing. originally going to do. She's just going to go somewhere by herself and kill herself. But it seemed like more like she was going to face her trauma. I guess, like, the demon takes over eventually, right? If you just go somewhere remote, it's just going to take over and you, and you drive back to... I had a point I didn't oh. get to earlier. I thought... <laughs> I was like, why did it let her think, like, it... Like, she killed it. And I was thinking, I think it was stalling to get a witness, right? Because if it kills her there... I, yeah. thought, it, like, I thought it was going to play, like, happens. she thought she wants, and then she goes back, in, she thinks um, it's over, so she just goes back. But that's not really how, like, the movie played out, is it? Yeah. So I guess that too. guy showed up. Like, Which, it was waiting for the cop dude to show up the, so the, that I had a witness. The big thing with that, with the ending for me as well, is why does the monster pretend to be her mom? It's like, that makes a lot of sense to me because that's like the nature of yeah, like it works like her psychology and her trauma. And you kind of see like the the professor guy. He saw his brother die, and then but, when she's interviewing Gloria, she saw like her grandpa die. So I think like you're it, kind of really focusing on like oh she saw her mom it die. It doesn't feel like the that interaction was supposed to be traumatizing. It felt like they were working towards a resolution for her character. Because she has, like, some great character growth there, right? Because she's been putting off... She I was refuses, 10 years old! <laughs> she refuses to talk with her therapist about her mom's death. You know, I've been living with this my whole life. I was 10 years old. I, I, I wasn't responsible. It wasn't my fault. Right? That's, like, a major breakthrough. So I just felt really confused by the framing when it was revealed, like, that was the monster. And it wasn't just, like, another random hallucination she was having. 
but it was the monster who had corporealized as her mom and then had this conversation whose trajectory was towards a healing moment. And then all of a sudden, actually, I'm an eight foot tall dude with a wig. Let me eat you. Like, what? <laughs> that monster was pretty cool, Louis. That a pretty freaking cool monster. <laughs> I thought, I don't know, I just noticed its teeth were really straight and white, and I thought that was kind of weird. The emotional direction of the scene was so wrong when it was revealed that it was the monster. And yeah. I guess kind of... I was on board by the second half. I guess established some... Yeah. yeah. I guess you could say, like, Maybe it was like, oh, we're kind of doing a resolution on site. Like, you didn't work through anything sort of thing, you know? It kind of made her feel safe and, like, she had gotten control of this and then just never mind. Yeah. But it doesn't really work out well. I actually, out well. I actually really like the idea of having that trick of, of killing it be yeah. luring her to go back to somebody. I think that would have been cooler because the cop just shows up, which, you know, it's because she went to a place she owns. So, you know, he probably knows about the house because they were together and whatnot. Yeah. But it's yeah, hard to choose that place. Well, maybe he's a cop, maybe tracked her phone. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> bit another one of those things where it doesn't like exactly logically track. Yeah. Which... He talked about it before in a sense of like that plausible, what what did you say, like plausible um, and possible yeah, is better than um, plausible? <laughs> so, yeah, there's like an old Like that movie with Russell Crowe where he's breaking his movie out of prison and, and the detective guy runs up and sees him in a crowd right at that moment, right as they're underneath it. And that just drove me freaking crazy. Yeah. I think I already talked about it. Though, there's but. an old writing adage that <laughs> a possible, impossibility. a plausible impossibility is better than a possible implausibility. So like if something can actually like happen in our world, but it doesn't feel like it would happen, that's something that you shouldn't do. And if something is actually impossible, but it feels like it could happen, that's fine to put into stories. I think it was weird that they didn't really understand the roles of different people in the psych field. Like your therapist isn't gonna give you meds, so I don't know what she was doing. Going to her therapist <laughs> and asking for something for the hallucinations. They don't she give scripts. She knows a guy. I guess that's a psychiatrist, right? Which, I was wondering, is she a psychiatrist? Because that was the gist I got. Does it ever say? I don't know. I bet it does say. Her name is Dr. Holyoke or something. <laughs> it just says doctor. Oh, see, that's another good scene, though. I really like when, when that, when she's like, you're about to die. Like, after she got the phone call and the doctor's there in front of her. She's kind of stepping after her. That was that pretty well for me. I like that. In isolation, it's a great scene, but my issue is, to me watching it, the whole scene was framed around getting that like final moment where she's drooling and like in her face, and then we cut away to something completely different that has nothing to do with it. It doesn't advance, it doesn't carry weight. That's like one of the, the better scenes from, yeah, it's like crazy and scary. It doesn't carry the weight because it doesn't feel connected to the rest of the film. You, you have that great frame of her drooling and then we're, I don't know, back in the hospital or something. Tie it together for me, my guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a question for you guys. Like, how would you, what would you act? Like, how would you act if this was you? Like, to survive or go through the story? Or like, what would you do when you're like experiencing that hallucination with like the demon? And buy some like, uh, some hardcore drugs and then any time it starts going on, you just get comfortably <laughs> numb. <laughs> I guess it's probably a common thought of just offing yourself when you're all alone once you know that like trauma is necessary for it to jump. Um, that was one thought. I 
honestly thought isolating was a really great idea, but Logan, you mentioned that the monster can just take control and force you back into society. So I guess that wouldn't work out, but I'd probably, I could see myself trying that. Um, cowardly. <laughs> but honestly, like, why don't you just try to commit suicide and get locked up where you're like on suicide watch? You I know, they throw you in a padded cell with it's the, it's not, making it's not a long-term solution. Yeah, but like time. Dude, nothing she's doing. What if you killed a baby Shh. in front of another baby? Because then you have your witness, and like, how is a baby gonna kill themselves? Like, yeah. r- roll over and smother themselves or something? Feels like it'll be a Cause I have tougher thought, game like, for a baby. You just, well, you buy a couple months. I guess like my thought with locking yourself up is, is there some kind of paranormal restraint on how how long the the monster can stay around? Right? Because nobody. A week is the maximum anybody has lived, but if on day four you lock yourself up for two weeks, you're already setting records, man. <laughs> you're at 18 days. Suck that, previous suicides. I kind of think about that, like, just get me in, like, a seclusion room. Literally nothing in there. What is the demon going to do to me? I don't got anything to hurt myself with. You're not being your teeth. But also I was thinking, if your kind of goal is, like, I just want to live, I think... I had two ways of thinking, like, I just need to live, like, I need to survive, but then also, like, stopping this chain from continuing. Because if you murder somebody, you're keeping the chain going, but you're saving yourself. But then if you, like, go somewhere isolated and kill yourself, you're not saving yourself, but you're stopping the chain from going on and killing other people. Uh-huh. So I guess if my two different motives, if I just want to stop the chain, I would just kill myself somewhere where I can't pass it on. But if I want to survive, like, I was thinking, like, how are you going to kill somebody and get away with it if you have to have a witness? Kill the baby. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, thematically, it's actually really interesting, which I think I mentioned is I like, I love the idea on paper of having the the story of, of the monster linked into, like, the fundamental flaw of the character, which is her 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 trauma and her, you know, unwellness mentally. You ever see It Follows? I'm pretty sure that was like a monster that like followed different people. But Is I think, that the one where it's like you have to have sex with someone. Yeah, where it's like you have sex, you pass it on, and then once they die, it comes back to you. I don't know. I never saw it, but I think Is that, was is that with Joel Edgerton? I don't think so. He has one horror film that he was in. Yeah, I know what you're already thinking about. But I think that was something different. Um. Anyways, yeah, you were talking about a parent in the text, but I just didn't think about it until you were talking about reiterating how how it jumps from trauma to trauma because thematically i think that's actually really interesting that's another point i would give the film is taking i guess real life which is the the very real concept of generational trauma Mm -hmm. of you know kind of our hurts give us a tendency to to propagate similar damage onto other people and so like thematically I think that's that's a really interesting angle for the story, and I feel like it's angling for that, but it doesn't quite get it. I was thinking, it's kind of like, how does the demon attach to trauma? All the people you see, it's like, oh, I watched somebody I love die. So it's very, like, death-based, but I'm wondering, like, I have trauma, I go to therapy, but, like, would I qualify for this demon? Well, <laughs> Is my trauma... Well, I thought you didn't enough? have to have trauma. I thought it was the trauma of seeing someone freaking kill themselves. Well, but they also that have, was like, one logistical trauma. question I had, is the two examples that were given most in-depth is Rose, our protagonist, Munoz. and Munoz, right? Those are the only two people we get well, backstory Munoz's of. 
His trauma. brother died. You remember when she goes and she sees like the pictures and oh, yeah. the Martha's like that's her his brother that he saw die. It's oh. haunted him for twenty years. Oh, I, yeah. I remember that. I didn't yeah. really and then stick like also in my mind, I guess. when she's like interviewing now. Laura, it's like oh yeah, oh, her, I her, saw her... my grandpa die when yeah. I was seven. Okay, so we have three examples. So yeah, that was another question I had like just logistically in the world of the film. So all these people are happening to suicide in front of somebody who saw like a loved one die <laughs> like is that what the story is yeah something kind of some kind of cosmic thing going on there um, the monster knows <laughs> well, i like, I like get, when that monster said like your mind. your mind is so in, in, invite, inviting did you say inviting yeah inviting oh that was spooky <laughs> yeah that, that was a good one i that was one thing that okay here's here's maybe I, I was trying to find a way we could like end on a positive note instead of you know punching down on this movie <laughs> um, but here, here's another thing that I think the movie does really good, or I like about the film, is one of the issues, and I think maybe we might have talked about this on an earlier episode, is the sweet spot, whatever the opposite of a sweet spot is, uh, a sour spot in anything that is paranormal or horror or sci-fi even, is if you don't explain how anything works you can tell a really great story because people won't get bogged down in the logistics of you know space travel or time travel or how this monster passes from person to person but if you start to explain too much then they start looking for answers and they start like dissecting the text in a very logical way and so you have to go all the way and be able to explain fundamentally in the logic of the world you've built how everything works sufficiently to quell all of those questions and so if you fall in between those two points i think it makes it a lot harder to to tell anything with those questions which in my mind would primarily be anything paranormal and anything sci-fi so and i i feel like it is a common issue um i can't really think of any great examples off the top of my head but once you cross that threshold of of trying to explain too much it becomes difficult to get the story without telling everything and i i feel like the film does good with that balance in particular i'm i'm not so hung up on understanding well how does it transfer and like you know i, I do have that question of mm -hmm. is everybody who witnesses the suicide have this lingering trauma from a personal family death but it isn't to the point where like i'm actively thinking about that while watching the film and then it kind of it gives you enough at the end i really actually i love that line of your mind is so inviting right and it kind of just frames the monster as this being that feeds on human terror or whatnot and its way in is the trauma right the guy says oh it has to be traumatizing and i guess that kind of cracks the psyche of the next victim so that the monster can come in and start feeding on the terror. So to me that's like mm. just right, you know, it gives you enough <laughs> explanation of why things happened, but without getting you bogged down into all the details. And to be consistent, I think is what people say about, I guess I have the logic to it. Yeah. The world, your world building, I, think, I don't know, I read something about that. So, that's probably more fantasy and magical stuff. I mean, world building is world building. Is this a watch or a not watch? We don't really do that on the show, but... <laughs> I was wondering, what did you say earlier about how she probably shouldn't be a psychiatrist or something? 
like it was because of her trauma. Yeah, I'm not saying that people with trauma shouldn't help other just people. It was, like, it's just yeah. Her her boss is 100% right, you know, after the suicide to say, "Hey, don't work. You can't be your own patients." Even her own therapist is like, "My guy, you got some stuff to work through. You you're not working right." And she's like, "No, no, I'm on a hiatus. Good. Go do anything else on your hiatus. I guess I have a couple of thoughts there. Just it's interesting that first of all I feel like she shouldn't have been working to like restrain that patient in the first place. You saw somebody die so like they would be like okay you're not coming back to work for a while. Mm. So it's just kind of weird that like immediately she was working and then something happened and they're like take a hiatus. Yeah she honestly a workaholic though. It's how she yeah. deals with her trauma. <laughs> Throws herself into her work. Not necessarily her acting but the way they wrote the character. I'm like I don't believe she's a psychiatrist. Personally, yes. She does seem very professorial to you. Well, let's see. The first, when Laura's cutting her face, right? She's going so slow. I would be like grabbing her arm and like pulling it I away from her. I she might cut me. That's what the orderlies are for. A lot of blood from that. Yeah. Did she like hit like an artery? That's how I made sense of it in my mind. Cause like, she's bleeding like a ton for like a little cut on the face. <laughs> yeah, cause she's only got like maybe three quarters of an inch at most of pottery in her face. I guess, you know, we have a lot of veins pretty close to the surface, so good enough. They were bleeding out on the floor at the end, too, with the so and they're pulling pretty good there. It's just uh. interesting to think logistically, like, she's standing there for a good second, holding it in her hand, and then she very slowly cuts her face. I'd be like, I'd be trying to intervene. I like, she's smiling when she's doing it. That would be fucking <laughs> terrifying. She'd well, petrified. If you were a real psychiatrist, you'd kind of be immune to that. You see creepy stuff all the time. I see people rubbing their feces all over stuff. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking, in the beginning when she's like watching her cut herself, like my thought would be like, oh you intervene because you don't know what's going on. I'm just working in this like hospital and someone's trying to kill themselves and they're trying to stop. But mm. then the very last scene, you know, when cop dude Joel's like watching her burn, you like see it in his eyeball how she's burning. Mm-hmm. At that point, like, I know what's going on. I know about this demon entity thing. What happens if I just get the fetch out of there and I don't see it happening? Does yeah. it attach to me? Like, to see it? That guy is kind of dumb. Like, yeah. I don't know, he has all this evidence of the chain of suicides, but, like, he doesn't believe her reasoning? What? Like, why? She says, oh, I'm going to be alone. And so he says, oh, well, I'll come witness you die. Like, I don't, I don't really get his thought process there. Remember back in her in that guy's apartment where she thought he was she was in the apartment and it got yeah. all dark. Ooh, that was a, that was another nice beat too. I feel like he acted that well there. Like I feel like his yeah, laugh yeah, was yeah. really creepy. Like, <laughs> well, yeah. I like right. that part. I, I didn't like that he was laughing because none of the other ones they're laughing. They're just smiling. Okay, but guess what? It's kind of like so we're seeing the movie from her point of view, and that's when she's actually herself like afflicted by the monster. And maybe Laura's mind, maybe that's what's, maybe there is laughter, huh? Because I think like... I didn't even think about that, did you? <laughs> she has these like spaces in between hallucinations, but she's always like, you know, like she's, she's visibly anxious and she's on edge and she doesn't feel safe. I think that's like the first time she feels safe because she's like, oh, I defeated it. I'm safe now. So I think that kind of has something to do with it. Like, this is the first time she feels safe and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, he's laughing. Oh, this isn't... Real, this is hallucination. I'll I don't care who it is. If I was that cop, I don't care if my own mother comes to my house. Say, no, go away. I don't get infected by the monster next, thank you. I mean, y'all do have a right to freak out when you realize. I'm playing with the devil. That, that monster would run rampant through those jail cells, though. You imagine if that guy got infected again? 
All of a sudden, you have a prisoner ganking himself every day, my guy. Yeah, what is that guy's problem, though? Wait, how is he going to get infected again? He needs to calm down. Dude, she what just got to take a pen out of her pocket and stab herself in the neck. He's got yeah, it. They're, like, alone in that room. Oh, yeah. She does something, boom, it's on him again. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> ah, but then he could just kill a prisoner and he'd <clears throat> ride his reign again. <laughs> yeah, he's not going anymore. He just, you know, whistles across the cell block. Hey, hey, look at this. And, you know. Because black, I bet black seat. people have a harder time getting paroled, don't they? Wouldn't it surprise me? I mean, like her sister or her annoying husband, they added absolutely nothing to the movie. Little blind kid pulling a cat out of a box. Blind? <laughs> I don't know, he had glasses. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? Yeah, and like, what was with the... There's that scene where she freaks out in her car and we see the little nerd boy watching her. Oh, I guess maybe that just... Yeah, it doesn't tie into generational trauma. That, you know, like you could see the building block of that being a moment, but I guess it didn't do a good job of expressing that. I was watching the film, I wasn't like, oh man, generational trauma is a real son of a bitch. I said, I said I didn't like all the profanity. That's like only provisionally true. I think it, I think it's because I didn't care for the characters. You know, I've been bagging on them a lot here, but because of that, I'm like, I wonder if there's like some classing in there because there are all these rich people. Are they just throwing around at bombs like that? Because they seem mm. like honestly, like, really I believe it for anybody <laughs> in healthcare, but right. the other characters not. But like, I mean, I saw like uncut gems, and so like it's it's more of something that like it only provisionally annoys me, but it did in this movie. Yeah, I, I, I felt that. For it. I don't want to hear it. I felt that too. I, I think a lot of it is. It could be character driven, right? Like I wonder if it, like it's some kind well, of classing. I was just not expecting it from him. And it I also like think it, it's just it has to match the emotion of the scene. I feel like if she's freaking out, it makes sense. Yeah, but if yeah, they're freaking out. But yeah, for the other I said times. it was super wooden too. So yeah, but, but like not like impact. Maybe when like she pulls the dead when the kid pulls the dead cat out and she like falls through a table and cuts herself up and starts screaming. At that point. I think most people would probably start cussing, but when having a sibling fight and they just yeah, it feels like it's too much, <laughs> and so then it gets like pretty juvenile in a sense, right? I'll be honest though, the second time watching it, I'm like, I didn't really notice it swore this much. Maybe it's just because I'm like kind of oh. desensitized to it, but mm. watching it the second time, I was like, oh yeah, they are saying the f word a lot. She's not a believable character when it comes to like a psychiatrist. I feel like. My, the psychiatrists I work with, they have potty mouths. Everybody I work with has potty mouths. I believe anybody in healthcare having a, like, cussing all over. Thank you so much for listening to Notes from the Silver Screen. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and know someone else who might, please share it. As always, we'll be back right here in a couple of weeks with a new episode. Seems like a convention now. You see it all the time on quarter, like every single quarter video. The VFX artists react. They have a this is what you're gonna see in the in the middle of the episode, but we're showing it at the front to titillate you. I'm already here. I'm on your website. I'm subscribed to it. I clicked on the video. I know what I'm expecting. You did, don't need to advertise. Did you it. see the hour long episode they did with that guy? Uh, I watched some of it, but it, I didn't really care for him, and I didn't really care for most of the breakdown. Was the freaking Genesis? Yeah. 
Whatever it was. Okay. I don't know. It was one of the Terminators. I've never seen it. I'm not really interested in it. One thing, so. is it silly that... I didn't really watch all They're that. talking about his digi-doubles. His digi-doubles aren't good. <laughs> like, everybody's blowing smoke up his butt saying, Oh man, those are so good. The digi-doubles were garbage. Were we even watching the same clips? Which ones? I mean, because... All the Terminator was... ones. Yeah, I mean, aren't the ones on the beach looked okay? The, the the Arnold Schwarzenegger one, like... I don't think the... Is it like a texture, I'm guessing? It's just like very plastic to me. Dude, they looked like out of a video game cutscene. Yeah. Yeah, they were good. They were like well modeled and rendered, but they're not photo real. Why, why would you do a digi double in a feature film if you can't make it photo real? That's my point. <laughs> and, and like the guy made a point of that. Probably one of my strengths is, you know, I'm not afraid to go full digital. And I'm like, maybe you should be. <laughs> maybe you should be because your digital looks garbage. It's miles better than I could do. And I understand he's a small, like independent studio. Dude, shoot plates, shoot live action if you can't make photo real digi doubles. If you can't meet, match the quality of 1917, where I literally can't tell when you transition from footage to model, don't do it. We, we're a lot further along than the Scorpion King back in Mummy 2, but like... Yeah, they had they that guy too. He was a hard-looking dude. <laughs> that's, that's why, that's that's why, why I cast him as an alien. Because <laughs> he looks like an alien straight up. That one was funny. <laughs>